everybody. Somebody say good evening to somebody. Good evening, somebody. Hey, we're going to go ahead and have worship, and then we're going to have a couple songs. We're going to do tithes and offerings. If you've got your tithe that you normally come to the church here, offerings, we're going to have an offering here in just a minute. But here's what I want you guys to do. Let's just worship the Lord. Everybody in this section, worship the Lord. Hallelujah. And then, then what we're going to do is after praise and worship, we're going to move over there, and Dr. Grady's going to speak. Let's give the Lord some praise in the house tonight. Hallelujah.
give the Lord some praise in the house tonight. He is worthy. He is worthy. We're giving Jesus some praise. We give you glory, Father. Thank you so very much. Okay, so uh, the impossible thing has happened tonight, and I just want you to know that miracles do happen. Turn to somebody next to you and say, there's a miracle in the house. The miracle was, the miracle was, Grady was like, there's no way we're going to get everybody moved over into this section, you know, and still have, it still be like 645, and there's no way that's going to happen, but 641, and, and, and we got it done. They're coming. We still got three more minutes. We've got three more minutes by faith they're coming. Okay, has everybody got some room there? Okay, let's do this. Uh, first of all, we just want to welcome you. This is the last night. I mean, Grady has been, well, he's just been giving us so much information and knowledge. And our goal is to be able to take what he's given us and really begin to solidify that, number one, God is a creator God. Number two is that, is that you know what, evolution is just full of, well, stuff. I thought somebody would be going, oh, no. So I just want you guys to, to give Grady a great big warm welcome tonight. Let's welcome him as the last time he comes and speaks. Well, let's see if we can turn my sound up a little bit because I'm not as loud as Pastor, you know. Everybody said amen. amen. Thank you. Well, good evening. Did you all feel like you got blown in here tonight? <laughs> I tell you, the wind caught my door this afternoon in my van. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> well, I don't care about the wind. I don't care about the cloud. Thank God for the rain, right? So good evening. Yeah, still needs a little work. So, well, as promised tonight, we're going to leave our most explosive presentation for tonight, correct? And I feel like it because, first of all, after all that wind today, but... I also taught at Woodward Christian Academy this morning. We had a, we had a wonderful time down there. I was uh, showing the uh, adults and the children uh, my presentation on sharp claws and sharp teeth do not immediately make. And uh, I think everybody enjoyed it. The pictures are pretty convincing. But tonight we're going to talk about beautiful Mount St. Helens. Now, again, why would we want to take a look at a relatively small volcano in the southwest corner of Washington State in a church service? Well, we always want to put a biblical foundation to anything that we are doing. And so I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles. After all, this is Wednesday night. I hope you brought your Bibles with you electronically, paperly. Or if you've got it entirely memorized, that's fine. There are people that can do it, folks. Uh, I'd like to turn to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. Now, there are eight great creation psalms. Uh, psalm 104 is one of the eight great, out of 150, eight great Christian psalms. I have a chapter in my book on it. We've got a DVD on this and so forth. Because eight psalms deal entirely with the subject of creation. And Psalm 104 is referred to as a summary psalm. The reason is it summarizes all of creation from the creation week 6,000 years ago to the time of the psalmist. And in the first four verses of Psalm 104, you have a summary of the creation week. Then in verses 5 through 9, you have a chronology of Noah's flood. And so if you take a look at 5 and 6, it says that God sent a complete total flood of the entire earth. Verse 6 says the water was standing above the mountains, right? Now you've got to be able to answer the uh, questions the world is asking. And they're going to say to you, well, there has never been enough water on the surface of the earth to cover the mountains that exist today. And I agree. 
I agree, there's never been enough water on the surface of the earth to cover the mountains that exist today. But those are not the mountains that existed from creation to the flood. Because think with me, the mountains that existed from creation to the time of the flood, well, they were completely eroded away by the waters of the flood, redeposited as wet mud layers on the surface of the earth, dried out into the sedimentary rock layers we see all around us today. And you have to remember also, to be called a mountain, what does it take? See, evolution will say, well, there's never been enough water on the surface of this earth to cover the mountains that exist today. And they talk about, oh, the Matterhorn at 19,000 feet high, Mount Ararat at 19,000 feet high, Mount Everest 28,000 feet high. And again, they're right. There's never been that much water on the earth. But to be called a mountain, the scientific definition is 1,000 feet of elevational difference in a local area. So 1,000 feet or more of elevational distance uh, here, or difference, in a local area is the definition scientifically of a mountain. If it's less than 1,000 feet, it can be 999 feet. It is a hill. At 1,000, it becomes a mountain. And so a mountain only has to be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5,000 feet high. And the mountains from creation of the flood were only 1, 2, 3, 4, 5,000 feet high because they were covered with only one mile of water. I proved that three years ago when I was here the first time. And so what happens? Verses 5 and 6, Psalm 104. God sends a complete flood of the entire earth. The water is standing above the mountains. Those waters completely erode those mountains away, redepositing them as wet mud layers on the surface of the earth. You'll notice in verse 7 it says this, Then the waters go away. Notice verse 8. Now, Depending upon your translation, it may not be obvious, but let me explain what it says in Hebrew. Verse 8, after the water goes away in verse 7, then the mountains rose up, the valleys sank down, the place you did establish for them. And in verse 9, God promises he'll never again flood the earth with water. The flood of Noah was a one-time event with a one-time purpose. And so that's the chronology of the flood. God sends a worldwide flood, the waters come out of the earth, cover the mountains that existed then, a mile or less in height, grind them up, deposit them as wet mud layers, the waters go away, then the mountains that exist today rise up out of the ground, valleys sink down, and in verse 9, God promises he'll never again flood the earth with water, right? Now, why do we want to take a look at this relatively small volcano in the southwest corner of Washington State? What you're going to see is a real vindication of Noah's flood you're going to see that geological features, in fact, do change rapidly, not slowly and gradually, as evolutionists claim. Now, this is a picture of what Mount St. Helens looked like prior to an eruption on May the 18th of 1980. Now, this is a relatively small volcano. Just so you'll know what you're looking at, this is two miles high at the top here, but it's a relatively small volcano. And uh, I think you'll agree it's rather pretty. Now, in this picture here, I, as a matter of fact, in almost all the pictures tonight, I want you to think of yourselves as sitting north of this volcano. You're going to be sitting up towards the areas of Seattle, Tacoma, Washington. You are looking south, because behind the mountain, south of the mountain, that's going to be Portland, Eugene, Oregon. So in almost all the pictures you're going to see tonight of the mountain, I want you to think of yourselves as sitting north of the mountain, looking south. And this is the north face of the mountain here. And as you can see, north of the mountain, you see these nice green trees. Now, this is part of a U.S. national forest, 
And so as American taxpayers, you own those trees, which I think is incredibly interesting because when they cut them down, then they make you pay for them. Think, think about it, folks. And because this is a U.S. national forest, it is a multiple-use area. So we have hunting, fishing, camping, sustained yield timber management year-round. And because it's halfway, basically, between Seattle and Portland, Oregon, and it is just east of I-5. If you're ever out there in that area, you're driving north or south on I-5, you can see the mountain off to the east if you just look in the right place. Uh, and because of that, it's a very popular resort area. And so there are people that have, you know, there were private land holdings in the forest before it became a national forest. And so there are people that have vacation homes, you know, weekend vacation homes, summer vacation homes. Some people live in the forest year-round in the service industries, in the forest service, and so on. And uh, also here, north of the mountain, you see this lake down here. Um, I'm not making it up because we're in church. The name of the lake was, and still is, Spirit Lake. And another feature on the north face of the volcano right here, this is an area referred to as goat rocks, right in here. This is goat rocks, like mountain goat, goat rocks, right? And, um, well, I think you'll agree that's really quite idyllic, right? Come on, folks, that's really pretty. Thank you. Um, well, that's what it looked like prior to an eruption that occurred on May the 18th of 1980. Now, this is an ancient volcano. It has erupted many times in the past. The two prior eruptions to 1980, there were people there to document the eruptions. We know it erupted in 1831. We know it erupted again in 1857 because there were people there to actually witness and document these you know, explosions. However, for 123 years, this volcano was dormant. There was basically no significant volcanic activity here from 1857 to 1980. But then, starting on Sunday morning, May the 18th of 1980, there would be seven major eruptions in this series. It would erupt on May the 18th, then one week later on May the 25th, then on June the 12th, then in July, on August, and October, six major eruptions in 1980. And then about a year and a half later, March the 19th, 1982, there was a seventh major eruption. And since that time, there has been relatively minor volcanic activity, although some of you might possibly remember uh, in the fall of 2004, the old girl showed she still had a little kick in her, and she hiccuped, and she threw a rock and so forth uh, 30,000 feet high. Th this is only a hiccup, folks, I assure you. And then in the spring of 2005, she hiccuped again, and that time she threw rock 50,000 feet high. But this is merely a hiccup. And so there's just been very minor, you know, volcanic activity there since that time. Now, I want to show you what's going on. Remember that inside a volcano, and I'm not trying to make this a high school science class, understand that, but what goes on inside your typical volcano? Well, hot rock comes up through the throat of the volcano here from deep inside the earth. The hot rock flows over the sides and builds up your typical cone-shaped volcano. Now, not all volcanoes are like this, but this is the way the majority of them are, and uh, you're all familiar with the process. Uh, however, I want to point out to you, hot rock does not explode. Hot rock does not explode. Hot rock flows, hot rock foams, but hot rock does not explode. 
So what does cause volcanoes to explode violently, in some cases pushing ash and steam as much as 100,000 feet in the air? It isn't the hot rock. It's the hot water that comes up with it. You see, what many people don't realize is 20 to 70% of the material coming out of the throat of a volcano is not hot rock. It's hot water. And when I was here three years ago, I did a presentation on the water's cleave. I showed what happened at the time of the flood. I showed the Bible was absolutely accurate. And we talked about this kind of water. This is water that's coming from deep inside the earth, one mile, five miles, even ten miles down. And that water can be up to 900 degrees Fahrenheit. But it is liquid water. Now, the water that came out of Mount St. Helens in 1980 was 660 degrees Fahrenheit. Hello? But it's liquid. So, um, well, what happened? Well, think with me. All of you are familiar with this kind of water. If you weren't out here three years ago or if you don't remember what I was talking about, how many of you still have in your kitchen or your grandma's kitchen something called a pressure cooker? Pressure cooker? Yeah, okay. Uh, Any of you ever seen a pressure cooker that didn't hold on? Okay, how much did it cost to repair the kitchen? Yeah. Well, that kitchen was destroyed by one to two quarts of this kind of water. And think about it. In the case of your kitchen, the water was only about 260 to 280. Um, But here, it was 660. And the hotter it is, the more the power. And so what happens? Well, just like the pressure cooker that didn't hold on in the kitchen, Hot water coming up through the throat of a volcano with the hot rock hits the surface, bless you, explodes in a huge steam explosion just like that pressure cooker, right? But, of course, in the case of a volcano, it's much more water. And so uh, also occasionally you'll get a little side venting, as you see right here. Now, every other time Mount St. Helens has erupted in the past, you saw it. It's one of the most beautiful, symmetric cones you could possibly find. As a matter of fact, along with Mount Hood, it was considered to be one of the twin peaks, one of the two most beautiful volcanoes in the entire Pacific Northwest. Um, But every other time it has erupted in the past, it's always erupted straight up. But on Sunday morning, May the 18th, 1980, it did something quite remarkable because instead of erupting straight up as it always had in the past, instead it erupted straight sideways, parallel to the ground, almost exactly due north. And because of that, we have now had a natural laboratory for the last 34 years to see what a little volcano can do. We're coming up on the 34th anniversary here shortly, correct? And let's just see what happened. Now, This is a map of the area prior to the first eruption on May the 18th. Now, what do we have here? Well, this map is basically 10 miles high and 15 miles wide. You're looking at basically 150 square miles of national forest. And for just the next 45 minutes or so, I'd like to to at least try to remember where some of these things are. And so on the map, you'll notice here at the south center here, here is Mount St. Helens, an elevation of almost 10,000 feet. And on the north face of the volcano, Goat Rocks. To the west, we have the south fork here and the north fork there of the Toodle River. Basically, in the center, we have Spirit Lake with an elevation on the surface of 3,200 feet. You'll also notice north of the mountain, there's another little lake up here, little St. Helens Lake. And then finally, at the center top is Mount Margaret. And there's only one other thing I'd like you to remember during the presentation. That is in the upper right-hand corner here, 
this area called Bear Meadow. Now, Bear Meadow is a meadow, but it is not a meadow in the bottom of a valley. Bear Meadow is a bald on the top of a ridge, and it is 11 straight miles from the volcano. So this is 11 straight miles in a line here, and this is on top of the third ridge because here's the volcano, here's the first drainage, the first ridge, second drainage, second ridge, third drainage, third ridge. And so this is third ridge 11 miles away from the volcano. And the reason I've given you that detail is simply to explain to you everything you see on that map, with one small exception, was completely and utterly destroyed in eight minutes. In eight minutes, this volcano destroyed a total of 230 square miles of national forest. In eight minutes, it destroyed $1 billion worth of materials. Today, that would be over $3 billion. In eight minutes, it destroyed 3.2 billion board foot of lumber. Now, that's enough wood to build 300,000 two-bedroom homes. I think that's more than you have in Woodward. Watch out now. Oklahoma City. We might throw in Norman. I don't know. Anyway, uh, and 57 people died here needlessly because they refused to heed the warning that they were given. And I want to show you what happened. Now, after the first eruption, remember I said that it did something quite remarkable. The side blew north, almost due north, perpendicular to the ground. And so this is what it looks like after the first of the seven major eruptions. What we have here is a horseshoe-shaped crater. The north face is blown north, almost due north here, parallel to the ground. And you'll notice basically everything north of the volcano is gone, with the exception of bare meadow, and I'll explain why a little later. And when this happened, it blew one half cubic mile of material north parallel to the ground, three-eighths of a cubic mile fell north and west, filling in the north fork of the Tootle River Valley. The valley no longer exists. It has been completely filled in. But of course, if one half cubic mile blows north, Three-eighths goes north and west. That leaves one-eighth of a cubic mile, right? Now, I used to have to spend more time in doing this, but how many of you are familiar with the Japanese word tsunami? Tsunami? Well, we can translate that in English as tidal wave, correct? Now, how many of you remember the tidal wave in Japan, March the 11th, 2011? We just celebrated the anniversary, the third anniversary, correct? Now, that was a great, great tragedy, and I do not mean to make light of it at all. But I'm going to tell you, we got magnificent videos of what it was like when that tsunami hit Japan. Now, first of all, you have to understand what a tidal wave is. You know, when you use the term tidal wave, you've been to big lakes, you've been to the Gulf, you've been to the Atlantic, the Pacific, you've seen waves come in on a beach. And when somebody says tidal wave, you get to think big wave. Is that right? But that's not what a tidal wave is at all. Uh, may I? A tidal wave is not a wave. A tidal wave is a wall of water. Typically, it is one, two, three, five inches high. There was an earthquake in the middle of the Pacific just a few years ago, 8.6, generated a tidal wave three inches high. 
you know, you, you, you wouldn't even notice that if you didn't know it was going by. See what I'm saying? Now, a, a big tidal wave is going to be one foot, five foot, ten foot high. But it's a wall of water that is moving at 500 miles an hour, and it is three miles deep. And when it crosses over a piece of land, it goes over it for more than a minute at, well, 500 miles an hour. Are you with me? Please don't change the temperature. Thank you. I know Shelley doesn't have a walkie-talkie up here. I can see. Uh, yeah, I was afraid of that. But think with me. March the 11th, 2011 in Japan, we have these magnificent videos. From a scientific standpoint, it's a tremendous study. It's a tr great, great tragedy. But why was that? That was an earthquake that occurred approximately 420 kilometers east of Japan. They had almost a half an hour warning. That allowed the news helicopters to get up, and we've got these great videos of this tidal wave hitting Japan. That earthquake was a 9.0 earthquake. And, well, when it hit Japan, the wall of water was 28 feet high, moving at 500 miles an hour. You see those videos, and you see people trying to run away, and it just rolls right over them. Think with me for just a minute. The Japanese lost a Shinkansen. Now, that's the Japanese word for bullet train. Now, I have done missionary work in Japan four times. I've ridden on the Shinkansen. There are three levels of Shinkansen. The slowest goes 120 miles an hour. The medium one goes 150. The express goes 180. They are smooth as glass. They are great technologies. But a Shinkansen could not outrun a tidal wave. Hello? Well, one more. How many of you remember uh, December the 26th, of 2004, Indonesia. You remember the tidal wave in Indonesia, 2004? Well, you've never seen the videos of what it looked like when it hit Indonesia, because there aren't any. The videos that you may remember seeing on the news were when that wave hit Thailand, Sri Lanka, uh, India, and all the way across the Indian Ocean and hit Somalia, killing over 200 people in Somalia. But you've never seen videos of the tidal wave that hit Indonesia that day because there aren't any. You see, that was an earthquake just off the coast. Now, it occurred 19 miles down, under one mile of water and 18 miles of rock. It was a 9.3 earthquake. It lifted a piece of land 600 miles long, up 30 feet and sideways 30 feet in a matter of seconds. That caused the tidal wave that hit Indonesia. When the wall of water hit Thailand and Sri Lanka and India, which is what you will remember if you remember those videos, the tidal wave was 15 feet high, 30 feet high. But the tidal wave that hit Indonesia that day was 98 feet high. Would you please think about that for a second? A wall of water, 98 feet high, moving at 500 miles an hour. That's why there are no videos. They didn't have time, and even if they had, it didn't matter. And the reason I've mentioned that is quite simple. When 
one-eighth of a cubic mile of this volcano went north and east and fell into the south end of Spirit Lake. It pushed the entire lake north in a tidal wave 860 feet high. Stop and just envision a wall of water two-thirds the height of the Empire State Building moving at 500 miles an hour for just a moment. And when that wall of water hit the south face of Mount Margaret and came back down, it brought everything with it. It brought all the trees, all the dirt down to bedrock. And with the eighth of a cubic mile of the volcano that fell down and into the lake from the south end, with the south face of Mount Margaret washed off down into the north end, the two came together and filled in the hole where the lake used to be. And today the bottom of the lake is now higher than the top of the lake used to be. Interesting what a little volcano can do? Now, there were going to be six more major eruptions, but after March 19th of 1982, this is what we have today. The volcano has lost 1,300 feet of elevation. That half a cubic mile of material that went north, east, and west has formed an earthen dam or dike or levee, whichever word is most usable for you, but earthen dam, earthen dike, earthen levee. And a new North Fork of the Tootle River has eroded into the debris field here to the west. But because of this earthen dam laid down by the volcano, it cannot get to the lake. And the lake has nowhere to go. So what happens? The lake starts to get bigger. But everybody knows if the lake were to continue to get bigger and bigger each year, well, eventually, either the pressure is going to cause a breach in the dam or it's going to overflow the dam, etching through it, and cause flash flooding downstream and additional damage. To prevent that from happening, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers came in and drilled a tunnel through this ridge right here, and today the lake drains to natural drainage here through this man-made tunnel, and today this is a National Historic Site to see what a little volcano can do. You know, one that you can drive to as opposed to Hawaii. Y'all need more caffeine on Wednesday nights. Uh, let's take a look at what happened. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is a photograph taken at the top of the volcano on March the 27th of 1980. Please notice, you'll see this little hole in the top of the volcano right here? That is called a steam pit. Steam pit. What has happened? Exactly one week earlier, on March the 20th, this volcano was hit by a 4.2 Richter scale earthquake with an epicenter under the mountain. Now, obviously we don't have photographic evidence under the mountain, but we all know what happened. This earthquake caused the volcano to, you know, rock back and forth. This allowed a crack to form under the old volcano for the first time in 123 years, allowing hot rock, hot water to pump in under the old volcano. In one week, the water has come up through the volcano two miles, turned to steam, and it has literally bored a hole from the inside out. That's why this is called a steam pit. The water's actually come up inside, bored a hole as it turned into steam, and come out. And the gray you see here is the first sign of volcanic ash. So here we have the first outward visible sign of renewed volcanic activity one week after the earthquake. And this activity is going to increase in intensity for the next eight weeks. For example... Here we see it a couple of weeks later. Now, you'll notice this beautiful cone-shaped white cap. Isn't it pretty? Oh, come on, folks. What have I, what have I got to do? Say it's really pretty? 
Come on, that's really pretty, right? But apparently your opinion has been somewhat dampened by this very ugly ashen steam plume coming out of the top. Is that your problem? Oh. How many of you are familiar with the word geyser? Geyser, right? Old faithful, comes out of the ground every so often, right? Well, ladies and gentlemen, over an eight-week period, this two-mile-high volcano simply became a huge geyser. The ashen steam plume that you see here was coming out of the top up to 95 times per day. And something else is happening. Here at Goat Rocks, you notice how this ash and steam is floating down over that north face, that area called Goat Rocks right here? Something else is happening right there. Because on the north face at Goat Rocks, over that eight-week period, the mountain, the volcano, literally becomes pregnant. That is the correct word to use when studying volcanoes. Think with me. What is happening? Hot rock and hot water are pumping in under the north face of the volcano. The north face is bulging outwards, and the volcano is literally becoming pregnant. That is the correct word when you study volcanoes. In eight weeks, the north face went out 450 feet. Now, this is old, hard, volcanic rock. Do you think it's elastic? No? So what's going to happen when you push old, hard, volcanic rock out 450 feet in only eight weeks? Well, don't get ahead of yourself now, but what's going to happen? Well, that rock is going to break, crack, fracture, correct? Or as in any good pregnancy, you're going to get stretch marks. You, you don't believe me? T take a look for yourself. Right here. You can actually see the volcano has become pregnant. Here you can see the cracking, breaking, fracturing in the stretch marks. Is that correct? And please notice, this is still three weeks to go before the eruption. It is critical to understand what is occurring here to understand what's going to happen three weeks later. But that hot rock, hot water is pumping in under that north face. It's bulging outwards, becoming pregnant. The north face is cracking, breaking, fracturing. It's becoming very weak because of this, correct? Well... I want to point out to you, volcanoes work 24 hours a day. You know, volcanoes don't know anything about day or night. You with me? And so when you study volcanoes, one of the things that you must do, you must fly over them at sunset and see where they're at. Then you must fly over them at sunrise and see where they are because they'll do things when you're not looking. Seriously. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is a morning observation flight. Here is a single-engine airplane. It has a pilot and an observer. They are flying over the north face of the volcano at sunrise. And here, the plane is going from the east across the north face and away to the west, right? So in this case, the plane is going that way, across the north face. Now, this is in mid-April. You will notice by mid-April, we now have two steam pits. There's one here. There's a second one here and they have formed a larger double-throated steam pit as a whole unit, correct? Now, I'd like to stop and make sure everybody hears me just very plainly about this. Ladies and gentlemen, the next 11 photographs I'm about to show you, we have in God's providence. Did you hear that? If God did not want us to have the next 11 photographs I'm about to show you, we wouldn't have them. Please take a look at the top of the volcano. 
Does it look a little fuzzy in the middle, but kind of sharp on the edges? Would you agree? A little out of focus or so in the middle, but it's sharp on the edges, right? What is going on here? Well, this is exactly 8.32.17, Sunday morning, May the 18th, 1980. This is a morning observation flight. A plane, in this case, it's moving from the west across the north face and away to the east. So in this case, the plane is going that way, has just passed the north face. It is now heading away eastward. They look back over their right shoulder. They see something happening and take that picture. What they cannot know is that at that very moment in time, this volcano was hit by a 5.1 Richter scale earthquake with an epicenter under the volcano. The reason this looks blurry in the middle is because in shaking, the volcano is being shaken by the, this earthquake, right? That is causing an avalanche to occur. If you look up here, you can actually see material breaking off the top edge here and streaming down in here. The reason this is fuzzy is because that's a live avalanche caught in a still photograph. And that's why it looks a little blurry. So this is exactly 8.32.17 Sunday morning. Now, they don't know about the earthquake. They're up in the air. They're in the plane, right? But they do see the earthquake has caused this avalanche. So they see the avalanche, right? Now, the one thing they do know, because they do study volcanoes and they see the avalanche, is they ought not to be there. Now, in a single-engine airplane, you do not accelerate. What must you do if you want to go faster? Well, you have to put the plane into a dive to get faster. And then they take this picture, put the plane into a dive to get speed, turn to the right, and start heading south, which was a really good idea. You don't believe me? Oh, yeah. They went, took this picture, goes down to get at speed, turn to the right, start heading south, kind of like the wall over there, towards those columns. And that was a really good idea. And if you don't believe me, take a look at the next picture they took. Please look in the very upper right-hand corner of the picture. That is the tail of the plane. Hello? So they're going down and south, which was a really good idea. <laughs> as you can see, the volcano has simply exploded behind them. Is that correct? Now you'll notice here's some material going straight up. Typical volcano, what Mount St. Helens has always done in the past, correct? But if you'll notice here, the entire north face has broken loose. It is now moving north towards you. Remember, you're sitting north of the mountain, right? So the entire north face is now broken loose. It is now moving north towards you. And it is moving towards you in a hurry. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it just so happens. Oh, come on, folks. I don't know about you. I, I, I love the just so happens in life. I do. I absolutely love the just so happens in life. I really do. It just so happens that that Sunday morning, there's a man named Mr. Ronholm. He is at Bear Meadow, 11 miles away. He has two professional 35-millimeter cameras on tripods. One of them has a monster zoom lens. The other one does not have any zoom lens. But one has, this is professional gear, 1980. And he is just there. He just so happens. 
he is there that Sunday morning because it was actually a quite clear day for the Pacific Northwest. I mean, you see a little haze, but it was really a very clear day for the Pacific Northwest. And it was a great day to take pictures. And he's just out there taking before photographs. Everybody knows that an eruption may occur, may be imminent, uh, so that he can come back and take after pictures later, right? He has no idea the volcano is going to erupt right in front of him that morning. Are you with me? So he just so happens to be out there. I'm going to show you a picture he took with the camera that has the zoom lens. But this zoom is not all the way out. So we're going to call this half zoom, okay? So the next picture I'm going to show you, uh, he took this, and it's with the camera that the zoom lens is halfway out, right? Now take a look. You're standing next to him at Bear Meadow. These are the trees of the second ridge here. Those are the trees of the first ridge there. And this is the volcano 11 miles away with some zoom, right? Now, I want you to look carefully at the photograph. Now, remember that this is May the 18th. The, the ice and snow melt completely away in the summertime, reform in the wintertime, and so on, right? And if you look right along the edge of the crater right here, you can actually see a little white here. This is ice and snow that is just about the finishing the melting process, right? But take a look. Please take a look at the very tip-top of the volcano right here. Do you see this area right there that's, well, it's kind of foggy, misty? Ladies and gentlemen, that is the avalanche you saw in the photograph, taken the first photograph by the plane. You see, he's 11 miles away. He feels the earthquake, knows something might happen, and takes this picture. And he catches the avalanche occurring right there, just as the plane caught it just a moment earlier uh, from above. You can't see the plane, but, but nonetheless, this is just a moment after the plane takes the first photograph, right? Now, he has professional 35-millimeter equipment, 1980. His equipment can take photographs in two-and-a-half-second intervals. Now, he takes this photograph when he feels the earthquake, correct? Now, he takes a photograph two-and-a-half seconds later, I'd like to show it to you, and would you please tell me, do you see any significant difference in the appearance of the volcano two and a half seconds later? Because two and a half seconds later, it looked like this. Uh, apparently, you missed it. Okay, look, it, it looked like that, okay? And then two and a half seconds later, it looked like that. Please notice, the entire north face has simply liquefied. It is moving down and out, correct? If you look carefully right here, you will see some material actually coming out from inside. Is that correct? And if you look very carefully right here, you can actually see just a little bit of material starting to come straight up. You have to look carefully, but you can see a little material right there coming straight up and a little material coming out right there. But the rest of the south or north face here going down and out here, correct? Well, let's take a look two and a half seconds later. Because at five seconds after the initiation of the eruption that morning, the volcano looks like this. You can see that the north face, again, is coming down and further out here. You can see material coming out of the middle here. But here you can clearly see the material coming straight up, right? Well, let's take a look two and a half seconds later. Because at seven and a half seconds, the volcano looks like this. You'll notice at seven and a half seconds... The entire north face has fallen down and out here, correct? Now you notice that all the insides are starting to come out. Is that right? 
Notice that here, this is going straight up, and you can tell by the height, this is just after the plane took the second photograph, right? You can tell by the height here, this is just after the plane took that second photograph. And here's material coming out and over this way, is that correct? So this is coming down and out, this is coming out, that's going straight up, and this is coming out and over, right? Well, let's take a look at 10 seconds, because two and a half seconds after that photograph was taken, at 10 seconds after the eruption, the volcano looks like this. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to clearly understand what you are looking at. Think with me. Remember how the volcano had become pregnant, right? That north face cracking, breaking, fracturing, the stretch marks and so forth over that eight-week period, moving out 450 feet, correct? That north face was just barely holding on. And when the earthquake hit that morning, it was like taking a pin and popping a balloon. But when it popped that balloon, the north face simply finally gave way. And all that hot water, that huge bubble of hot water that had formed in there, all of it turned to steam at the same time with a force equal to a 24 megaton atomic bomb. Did you hear me? 24 million tons of TNT. You realize that's more than a small nuclear arsenal. But what you're looking at is a natural steam explosion equal to a 24 megaton atomic bomb going off inside the volcano. And this is a natural steam water explosion. Now, this is at 10 seconds. Two seconds later, at 12 seconds, he is able to take a picture with the, uh, the uh, camera that, that has no zoom lens. You are about to see what it would look like if you had been standing next to him that day with a naked eye. No zoom, no binoculars, or anything else, okay? This is what it would have looked like at 12 seconds if you'd been standing next to him that morning. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you see that tree right there? That tree right there? They are below your feet on the third ridge. This is the second ridge, first ridge. That's the volcano 11 miles away without a telephoto lens. You are looking at a 24 megaton eruption at 12 seconds. Now, again, the camera that has the big zoom lens, two seconds later, at 14 seconds after the initiation of the eruption, he is able to take that camera to full length on zoom. And this is what it looked like at full zoom at 14 seconds. Now again, you see the second and first ridge here. You can see what this looks like, a 24 megaton eruption at 14 seconds. But I would like to ask you to please look at the center right portion of the photograph. So center right here, okay? Can you see those puffy little white streaks in the picture right here? Can you see those in the back? Hello? You can hear me, right? Okay, can you see them? You can, very good. Now, what are these puffy little white streaks? Well, to explain what those are, I'm going to ask you to come with me to July the 4th. How many of you have seen uh, July 4th fireworks, big white explosion in the sky? White burning embers are falling towards the ground. Puffy white streaks following the white burning embers. As long as the white burning embers are falling, the white puffy streaks get longer. This, this sounds familiar, right? What I have just described is exactly the same thing as what you see in the photograph right here, with one small exception. 
at the tip of each of those puffy white streaks you see in that photograph is a piece of solid volcanic rock the size of this part of the room. From this column to that wall, from the front to the back wall, from the floor to the ceiling, a solid piece of volcanic rock that size, it is moving at 200 miles an hour at a temperature of 600 degrees Fahrenheit 14 seconds after it was standing still. Now, I have to know, I, I know that in Oklahoma, if I've got this many people in a room together, there has to be at least one person in this room that's interested in drag racing. Six hands went straight up. Now, for those of you interested in drag racing, please tell me, how many horsepower does it take to take a solid piece of volcanic rock the size of this part of the room, accelerate it to 200 miles an hour, heat it to 600 degrees Fahrenheit in 14 seconds? Would you settle for a lot? <laughs> takes a lot of horsepower to do that, is that right? But that is what a little volcano can do. Now remember, you're standing next to Mr. Ronholm 11 miles away at Bear Meadow, correct? Now, Mr. Ronholm was a courageous man. But I want you to know, he was not, for us, fortunately, he was not a foolish man. He continued to take pictures for the next seven minutes. I'm only going to show you the last picture he took before he moved. Please look carefully. Ladies and gentlemen, those trees right there at the bottom, those are the trees below your feet on the third ridge. Is that right? Oh. This is an ashen steam curtain seven minutes after the initiation of the eruption that day. The front edge is still 350 degrees hot. It is moving at 80 miles an hour, and you have one minute to live. I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I'm simply pointing out to you, that is what death looks like staring you in the face. Now, I'm going to show you why you, he, and the film survived, but I just want you to think about that. At this point, you've got one minute to live if you don't move. And what has happened behind that ash and steam curtain in the last seven minutes. In the last seven minutes, trees with diameters up to six foot across. Not six foot around. Six foot across. This is old growth western trees. Trees up to six foot across have been hit so hard, so fast, by the blast of a 24 megaton eruption. The trees have actually been sheared off the ground like a lawnmower, leaving the roots in the ground. The temperature inside is 600 degrees Fahrenheit. Paper burns at 451. The trees are instantaneously set on fire by the intensity of the heat. And so these trees up to six foot across, sheared off the ground, leaving the roots in the ground. The trees are ignited by the heat, but the trees then fall on the ground. The limbs, leaves, needles, smaller portions of the upper tops burn away quickly. But because of the ash falling on top of the burning trees, the fires are smothered only minutes later, leaving nothing but the burnt logs lying on the ground. And again, 57 people have died needlessly because they refused to heed the warning. Is that right? And I said, I want to show you why you, he, and the film survived. He took that one last photograph threw his cameras into the cab of his pickup truck, 
drove a quarter mile over the top of the ridge to the other side of the ridge, stopped, and then he took this photograph. Please notice, that ash and steam curtain hit the third ridge at just the right angle to bounce up and over him. You too. Notice it hits the third ridge here, bounces up and over him there, correct? And uh, that is why you, he, and the film survived. And I told you we had these photographs in God's providence, didn't I? Oh. Well, let's just take a little look. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what the volcano looked for nine straight hours. I'm using black and white. We have color, but I'm using black and white. Would you not agree there's something special about black and white photography? Can you not just look at that and see power being released, can't you? Oh, yeah. And uh, this is a weather satellite photograph taken at 9.15 a.m. that morning from about 23,000 miles above the surface over Northern California. Here you see Northern California, the state of Oregon here, and the state of Washington there. You see the sort of oval or ellipse in the southwest corner of Washington State? Ladies and gentlemen, that is the shock wave still rippling through the atmosphere 43 minutes after the initiation of the eruption that morning. The same satellite took this photograph at 3 p.m. that afternoon. In six and a half hours, ash and steam had blown down over Portland and Eugene, Washington, uh, Oregon, excuse me, and across Washington, the Coeur d'Alene of Idaho, into not only Montana, but had reached the border of Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming in only six and a half hours. At Yakima, Washington, which is located here, it was so dark at noon the streetlights automatically turned on. This is May the 18th. The snow plows had been put away for summer maintenance. They had to get the snow plows back out to plow the ash off the roads, and for several years there was piles of ash 25 foot high along the sides of the roads. And uh, I think this is one of the most remarkable photographs you'll ever see in your life. Here we are in a plane, basically flying over Mount Margaret, looking south at the volcano. Now, you remember that beautiful cone-shaped white-capped volcano, right? Well, you all do remember that, right? Oh. But the volcano has lost 1,300 feet of elevation. The north face is blown north here, forming this earthen dam or dike north of the volcano. To the west here... That's the filled-in North Fork of the Tootle River Valley. You will notice in the shadow to the east here the new and improved Spirit Lake. And if you draw a line across the photograph right here, you will notice that everything facing south is gone. Is that correct? Only the trees on the north-facing slopes survived the blast. Is that right? And I think you agree. It is a rather, rather magnificent photograph. And, uh, well... You remember that little St. Helens Lake? Not the big one, not Spirit Lake, but the little St. Helens Lake? Well, this is the little St. Helens Lake. And do you remember that first picture I showed you, the very first picture I showed you with the nice green trees and everything? Come on, folks, it's only been 30 minutes. It's, you, you do remember, right? Well, that photograph was taken over here. These are those nice green trees you saw in the first photograph, and this is what they look like eight minutes later. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the children's game Pick Up Sticks. This is called Pickup Forest. You are looking at approximately 100,000 trees that were standing bolt upright and green, and eight minutes later looked like that. And this is only a portion of the forest that was destroyed. 
And, uh, well, here's the new and improved Spirit Lake. Now, if you look in the foreground here, you'll see fresh gray ash here. And right here, you'll see some dead tree trunks, correct? And here's Spirit Lake. But I'm going to ask you to look across the water. Look to the other side. And I want you to look at a triangular-shaped area of the photograph, okay? So look along the edge of the water here, back along that line right there, and over the top of that ridge right there. So here, here, here. This triangular-shaped area of the photograph. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there are no trick questions in any of my presentations. I assure you of that. I'm only asking this for consensus. Would you agree this looks like flat gray ground over there? Come on, we'll agree, right? It does. It looks like flat gray ground, correct? But that is not what it is. What you're looking at right here is that is one million tree trunks floating on the lake. They have been pushed into that cove by the wind. We have magnificent photographs and video. When the wind changes, the entire million trees float to the other side of the lake in mass. It's just an incredible sight. But that really is one million tree trunks floating on the lake. And if you don't believe me, I'll try to prove it to you just a little later. And uh, this is a 75-foot high cliff right here. And this is a fully adult young lady. She stands about five, seven and a half. And she's not a child. That's a fully grown young lady right there. But she's standing in front of a cliff 75 foot high. Now, I think you'll agree in looking at this, it's 75 foot high, but it's divided into three zones. I, I guess I'll put it that way, right? So, first of all, if we draw a line across here, there's one zone at the bottom that's very uniform, very homogeneous. Then from here to here, there's about a 25-foot zone here, and this is called highly striated, meaning many, many layers. As you can see here, you see many, many layers, right? As a matter of fact, these layers are only one millimeter thick, but the entire stack of layers is 25 foot deep. Are you with me? But each layer is only a millimeter thick. And then from here to the top, we have again a single black capstone there, Again, very homogeneous, solid layer, right? Now, this is 75 foot high. If you were an evolutionist who believed that material came into existence at the rate of one inch in depth every 1,000 to 10,000 years, you would look at the 75 foot you see here, and you would say this is representing one million years of Earth history. But we have photographic evidence and eyewitness documentation to prove Everything you see in this photograph, with the exception of the young lady, came into existence in less than three days. The bottom 25 foot, that is just the ash that fell during the first eruption in nine hours. So in nine hours, this volcano deposited 25 foot of volcanic ash here. The second zone takes a little explanation. This came from the third eruption on June the 12th of 1980, but how many of you are familiar with a cooking product called Pyrex? Come on, we got some cooks in here? Pyrex? Oh. Now, where does that come from? Well, the ancient word pyro refers to flame, heat, fire. Rex is the ancient word for king. And Pyrex is just the trade name for fire king. And it's a glass you can cook in. It'll take a lot of heat, right? During the third eruption, hot pyroclastic winds moving in excess of Hurricane Force 2 blew ash from another area here 
on top of this area and deposited all 25 foot of that material in five hours. So that was done in five hours by hot wind moving in excess of hurricane force two. The third layer on the top, that came from the seventh final major eruption on March the 19th of 1982 when a mud and lava flow came out of the throat of the volcano, slid down over this area, stopped, solidified in place in less than 24 hours. So this took nine hours. This took five hours. This took less than 24. How you doing? Geological features really do change fast in nature, don't they? They don't change slow and gradually, and many evolutionary geologists are now coming to agree that the formations we see on the Earth were all produced rapidly. They simply want to tell you that they occurred at different times. Of course, we as creations would tell you they all occurred at the same time. Hello? Now, this, of course, is a picture of the Grand Canyon of northern Arizona. Many, I'm sure, of you have been there. These layers of the Grand Canyon, I want you to think about it. First of all, all those layers are just layers of sedimentary rock. All those layers are just layers of dried-out mud. And uh, if you look in the photograph, right there and right there, you can see two short segments of the Colorado River. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the Grand Canyon goes from one-eighth of a cubic mile to 18, or, excuse me, linear, one-eighth of a mile to 18 miles wide. It is one two miles deep at its deepest place, and it is 270 miles long. Now, evolutionists want you to believe that that river cut that canyon. Come on, can you all say, not a chance? Thank you. Now, let's go back up to Mount St. Helens for a moment, because I wanted you to see this, and let's go back up to Mount St. Helens. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is a canyon at Mount St. Helens. It is 125 foot deep. The gentleman you see standing down here, he's a creation scientist friend of mine from California, now living in Texas. But he is standing in the bottom of a canyon that is 125 foot deep. That was not there one day and was the next. This volcano cut a canyon 125 foot deep in one day. Now what I want to do is, I want to go up on top here, and I want to go way, way over here, okay? So we're going to go up on top and then way, way over that way. Same canyon. There's the canyon we were just looking at. Now, when you look in this photograph, you notice how the land seems to be quite flat. Is that correct? I mean, the land is really flat. But when you look at the canyons, they simply drop straight down. Is that right? You see how these canyons are just dropping straight down here, right? Now, I'm going to stay in the same place. We're going to take a zoom lens, and we're going to zoom in to that canyon. So we're just going to take a zoom lens and zoom in here right there. Same canyon. Right here. And you can see those three layers we were just looking at, right? Here's the black capstone, the pyroclastic layers, the ashfall. And below that are previous lava flows from previous eruptions. This is called the Little Grand Canyon at Mount St. Helens. We saw a canyon, one 40th the size of the Grand Canyon form in less than six months. Now, the canyon over here to the right, this is called Engineer's Canyon right here. Let's just take a look at Engineer's Canyon for a second. Now, here's Engineer's Canyon. Now, I'm sorry you can't quite see it, but in the shadow you can see those layers we were looking at on the other side. Uh, they do go across here. But, but notice how 
Engineers Canyon. It has a straight sidewall, straight sidewall, flat bottom, correct? And uh, do you see this little bit of water going down the middle right here? Come on, can you all see the, just that little bit of water? Now, I don't know whether you were born in this part of Oklahoma. I know some of you were. But uh, maybe you've moved here from some of the other locations. So I don't know what you would call that. You, you might call that a brook. You might call it a rill. You might call it a creek. Or you might call it a crick. Hello? But there's a little bit of water going through there, right? Now, you already know the answer because I've already told you the answer. But, uh, ladies and gentlemen, did that little bit of water cut that canyon? Well, the correct answer was not a chance, right? <laughs> because you knew. You see, I've already told you how it was formed, but, but think with me for just a second. You knew if water etches slowly and gradually down through rock layers, you're going to get a V-shaped canyon, correct? But this is a square-shaped canyon, correct? And square-shaped canyons are cut fast. V-shaped canyons are cut slow. Square-shaped canyons are cut fast. And ask yourself a question. Is the canyon there because of the water, or is the water there because of the canyon? And the answer becomes obvious. Once the volcano cut the canyon, there was a place for the water to flow through. Is that right? And so the water is there because of the canyon, not the other way around, correct? Let's take that example and go back to the Grand Canyon of northern Arizona. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is a satellite photograph uh, taken from about 25,000 feet, or 25,000 miles, excuse me, above the surface of northern Arizona. And um, now the colors that you see here are not the true color. So this is a false color photograph, so the colors are not the correct color. But you see this sort of squiggle right here? That squiggle is the Colorado River, okay? So the Colorado River comes south here off the Colorado Plateau, turns at East Point, the eastern wall of the Grand Canyon. The river flows basically through the canyon, then turns again to the southwest here and empties into the Baja of Mexico. Now, ladies and gentlemen, again, there are no trick questions in any of my presentations. I'm just asking this for consensus, all right? Please tell me, would you agree Water flows downhill. Not a trick question. Not a trick question. Water flows downhill, right? Now, that would mean that for the Colorado River to flow through the Grand Canyon, the bottom of the canyon must get lower and lower as it goes, correct? But how many of you have actually... I'm not going to call on you. Just show me a little hands there. How many of you have physically visited the Grand Canyon? Just you've physically been there. Okay, we have uh, right at a dozen hands. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, this tells me from a scientific study I've just done, the rest of you need to get out of town more often. <laughs> it's not that far away. Hello? Well, of the dozen of you, of the dozen of you that have been to the Grand Canyon, now I've been to the Grand Canyon several times. Uh, of, of the dozen or so that raised your hands, you've said you've been to the Grand Canyon, may I ask a general question of you? Tell me something. When you went to the Grand Canyon and you walked up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, did you not look down? Come on, you walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you look down. Is that right? And 1.2 miles down, that little green thing is the Colorado River, correct? Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to think about something. The Grand Canyon has two straight side walls and a flat bottom. I know there's the beautiful buttes, the mesas that come up from the floor of the canyon, but the canyon itself has two straight side walls, and it's flat 18 miles across. Well, think with me for a second. I told you that this is a false, excuse me, 
Can you all just... Yeah, thank you. Uh, can you all see the sort of rusty color right here? Well, it's, it's not the true color. Remember I mentioned earlier it's a false color photograph? Is that right? This rusty color you see right here, that is actually green. I know it looks rusty here, but it's green. Now, this is actually the Kaibab National Forest. It's a scrub forest that grows on a ridge going north and south from northern Arizona into southern Utah here. But wait a minute. The water goes from east to west, but the ridge goes from north to south here. Um, so I guess we must have been wrong earlier, right? I mean, apparently water goes downhill, then uphill, then downhill again, right? Right? Well, maybe there's another explanation, huh? Think with me for just a second. Remember we talked about how the flood of Noah put wet mud layers all over the earth. Is that correct? Think about it. We showed you the picture with all those layers of wet mud inside the canyon, correct? That turned into hard rock. This ridge you see here is nothing but a sandbar, a mud bank laid down by the flood of Noah. And it goes north and south here. You see, uh, this is a scrub forest on top of the ridge in a high desert because there's just enough water coming in from the Pacific that when it bounces up over the ridge here, these clouds bounce up, there's just enough rain to support this scrub forest, and you've got a scrub forest on a ridge in the middle of a high desert. And so let's think about this. Well, the river goes from east to west, but the ridge goes north and south, right? Of the dozen of you that have physically been to the Grand Canyon, when you went there, how many of you remember being told by a park ranger or you read a placard or a brochure that told you the reason you are looking 1.2 miles down is because you're standing on top of a ridge. I don't get much reaction here. Yeah, you're looking on down because you're standing on top of a ridge. The Grand Canyon is a square hole through a ridge. Many people think the Grand Canyon is a canyon cut into a plateau. It's not. It's a square hole through a ridge. And uh, so let's think. Maybe there's another explanation. What if we simply take the Bible seriously? That this is a mud bar, sandbank, uh, somebody laid down by the flood of Noah. And remember, what does it say in Psalm 104? It says the earth was completely flooded with water, then the waters go away, correct? Verse 7. But then in verse 8 it says, after that, then the mountains rose up, the valleys sank down, correct? Now up over here, the Colorado Rockies are rising rapidly out of the ground after the flood of Noah. And think, the surface water has gone away, verse 7. But you're now elevating wet mud layers out of the ground. Now what happens when you elevate wet mud layers? Well, the water comes out of the ends, is that right? Now if the water's going east towards the Gulf of Mexico, no problem. But if the water's going west towards the Pacific, it comes up against this earthen dam right here. What's going to happen? It's going to pool up behind that ridge, that earthen dam, correct? And what's going to happen? Well, think with me. The reason you are looking 1.2 miles down into the Colorado River or the Grand Canyon is because it's a square hole through a ridge. The water comes in at 2,800 feet of elevation, drops 1,000 feet in 270 miles. And uh, this book, In the Beginning by Dr. Walter Brown, available on the back table, this is an encyclopedia for people who want intense facts and analysis. And this is a map from that book. And look, this is the Grand Canyon right here. This is that ridge here. These are two great lakes that formed up behind this earthen dam. As the Colorado Rockies are rising up rapidly, the water draining out going towards the Pacific, 
pools up behind this ridge and forms two great lakes. At one time, these two lakes covered 30,000 square miles. And then what happened? Because of an earthquake, possibly pressure, but probably an earthquake, there was a breach in that earthen dam right here. And all that water punched through that hole and cut the Grand Canyon in a matter of weeks. Think with me. You've got this ridge with those two great lakes behind it. And you can see that I'm telling you the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a satellite photograph of the Grand Canyon taken in the winter time. You see the white here? That is snow on top of the ridge. And so the snow helps you to outline where the ridge is, correct? And you can see for yourself, the Colorado River, go River goes south along the ridge, turns, goes, punches through the ridge here, and then turns and goes south again here. And you can see it's a square hole through a ridge. And just ask yourself, is the Grand Canyon the result of a little bit of water and a whole lot of time? Or is it the result of a whole lot of water and a little bit of time? Well, it's very obvious. It's a whole lot of water and a little bit of time, isn't it? And uh, perhaps you've done some recreational boating and fishing and so forth. Maybe you have seen tree trunks floating in a lake, perhaps a river, and you know that if they float in the water long enough, they get waterlogged, and they turn upright. Eventually, they will sink to the bottom. And when they hit the bottom, they may fall over, as is illustrated here. Or they may continue to stand upright here. And if they stand upright, wet mud layers form around the upright tree trunks. Now, I said that there was a million trees floating on the lake. You may have doubted me, but I was telling you the truth. And this is just a small portion of those million trees. So here you see all these trees, and notice right here and right here, we have two large trees starting to turn upright, correct? Right? Okay, look, folks, if you don't like those two, how about these? Oh, now you agree. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we did not know this until the eruption at Mount St. Helens, but it's something we should have thought of years earlier. You know how scientists, sometimes we have those V8 moments you know, why not think of that, right? Well, this was a V8 moment. We didn't know this until the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Now, ladies and gentlemen, these trees have been turning upright and falling to the bottom of the lake uh, now for the last 34 years, you know. And, uh, well, think with me. We have taken side-scanning sonar readings at the bottom of Spirit Lake. We now know there are 40,000 tree trunks standing bolt upright at the bottom of the lake that didn't grow there. We have seen colification. We have seen fossilization occur in less than 30 years. And when you look at the bottom of Spirit Lake, you see these layers of different species of trees, and evolutionists will say, well, these are different forests growing at different times and so forth, right? But ladies and gentlemen, we now know because of what happened at Spirit Lake, it's one of those, why not think of that moments, different tree species get waterlogged at different rates. And what happened was, the first tree species got waterlogged, turned upright, and fell first. Then a second species would turn upright and fall second. Then a third species would turn upright and fall third. That is why it looks like different layers of different forests at different times, but in fact it's one forest destroyed at the same time, simply sorted by water action. Oh. And uh, this is a placard paid for with your tax dollars at Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. I would just like to read two sentences with you for just a moment. Uh, again, an evolutionist wrote this. 
But it says here, across the valley rise the slopes of Specimen Ridge. But the forest you see there today is only the latest chapter in a remarkable story. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if they had stopped right there, I would agree with them. But typical ev evolutionists, they have to keep moving their lips. Take a look at the second sentence. Buried within the volcanic rocks. Now, I should think by this time tonight, y'all are pretty familiar with volcanic rocks. Is that right? That's what it says here. Buried within the volcanic rocks that compose the mountain are 27 distinct layers of fossil forest that flourished 50 million years ago. Now, this was written by an evolutionist. You understand that, okay? I don't agree with the 50 million at all. But notice it says, across the valley rise the slopes of specimen ridge. There are 27 distinct layers in the ridge. They are all volcanic material, right? Now, let's do what the placard tells us to do. Let's look across the valley at specimen ridge. Well, here we see specimen ridge, and there are 27 distinct layers. All of them are volcanic in nature. But I want to show you what is inside the ridge. To do that, I have to show you a drawing. So this is what it looks like on the outside. But what does it look like on the inside? Well, it looks like this. Inside the ridge, there are fossil tree trunks and fossil stumps. Now, some of the trees, they're horizontal. Some of the trees are vertical. And some of the trees that are vertical punch through the more than one layer. They're called polystrate fossils. It's my favorite kind of fossil. And it's a fossil which penetrates through two or more layers. And here you see trees that are actually punching through two or more layers. Uh, and there's stumps. But you'll notice many of the trees don't have stumps and many of the stumps don't have trees. Is that right? So what does that tell you? It tells you they didn't grow there. They were transported there. Is that correct? Now, ladies and gentlemen, these are two large stone petrified trees sticking out along the side of the slope where the erosion has exposed them. The gentleman standing in between them is a creation science friend of mine who's taller than I am. That gives you any idea of the size of those trees. And the, the whole ridge is just full of them, right? Now, what do evolutionists want you to believe about how Specimen Ridge came into existence? Well, they want you to believe that a, a forest grew up here 50 million, supposed years ago, which was destroyed by a volcano. Then a forest grew up, which was destroyed by a volcano. Then a forest group, which was destroyed by a volcano. Consequently, a forest group, and consequently, it was destroyed by a volcano. Following that, a forest grew up. And how many of you would like me to do that 27 straight times? Please say no. Thank you. Now, I realize there's not a person in this room that would gamble anymore, but maybe, maybe some of you, there's a time in your life, uh, you know, perhaps you were in the military or something like that. Now, how many of you ever walked by somebody throwing a fair pair of dice? and saw them throw the number seven 27 straight times in a row. Not a chance. Thank you very much. That was the correct response. Uh, it will never happen. But the number seven is the most common combination of two die. But you could throw a fair pair of dice a billion times a second for a trillion supposed years, and you will never get the number seven 27 straight times in a row. It is mathematically impossible. But evolutionists want you to believe that the exact same random chance event occurred here exactly the same way 27 straight times in a row. What do you think? Not a chance. By the way, by the way, in 1996, they changed the sign to read that all 27 layers came into existence at the same time, 50 million years ago. <laughs> now, let's take the Bible seriously. When I was here three years ago, that, that presentation on the waters cleaved,
I showed how thousands of volcanoes went off at the same time during the year of the flood. Those volcanoes, thousands of volcanoes, with far greater force than Mount St. Helens. Believe me, Mount St. Helens is just a little volcano. There was one volcano uh, that actually erupted in 1815 that was 80 times bigger. Hello? And that's less than 200 years ago. But there were much larger volcanoes at the time of the flood. And they blew, they're just blowing down billions and billions of trees all over the earth. And there were huge floating log mats of vegetation. There were actually huge floating forests before the flood of Noah. So let's think about this. These floating log mats and the, and the trees blowing down, forming log mats and so forth. And, uh, well, the trees are rubbing up against each other, rubbing off the bark. The bark floats down, forms peat deposits underneath. And there's volcanic ash falling on top of the trees. So there's volcanic ash falling on top of the floating log mats, the floating log vegetation mats. And if they get buried in dirt, you will get coal. Now, how many of you, as I was, uh, and I'm going to raise my own hand here, folks. So how many of you, as I was, were taught it takes millions of years to get coal? formed during the Carboniferous period, 300 to 360 million, suppose, years ago, what's called the Pennsylvanian and Mississippian periods. And that's what they taught us. Is that right? It takes millions of years to get But it doesn't. It doesn't. Ladies and gentlemen, again, there's no trick questions here. Does that look like a natural piece of anthracite coal? It does. I mean, there's no trick questions. That is anthracite coal. Now, anthracite coal is the hardest, densest, bestest, blackest coal there is. It's the really good stuff. You know, uh, there's, there's brown lignites and there's soft coals. There's bituminous medium-grade coals. But anthracite, anthracite is the really good stuff. That is the hardest, densest, blackest, bestest coal there is. And that looks like a natural piece of anthracite coal. It is anthracite coal, but it didn't take millions of years to form it. It was made in a laboratory back in 1972, almost, well, within a few hours. And remember that at Mount St. Helens, we saw coal form very shortly after the eruption. Now, this, of course, is a laboratory experiment. I agree. It's a laboratory experiment. Humans were involved. I understand that. But we now know that in nature, coal forms quickly. Argonne National Laboratories is located just outside of Chicago is one of the great federally funded laboratories of the United States. Back in 1984, 30 years ago, Argonne National Laboratories proved you form coal in nature in only nine months. All you have to have is wood with kaolin clay, a common component of volcanic ash, buried in the ground deep enough to have no oxygen, a temperature of 300 degrees Fahrenheit, and you will get coal in nine months. If it's hotter, you'll just get it faster. Now, the hot water coming out of the ground at Mount St. Helens was 660 degrees, but at the time of the flood, it was up to 900. Those wet mud layers in which these trees were buried had a lot of heat. And you know as well as I do, dirt is a good insulator. Is that right? So let's think about this. There was more than enough heat to cook these trees into coal very quickly. Is that right? Oh. And, uh, you remember little St. Helens Lake? You remember Pickup Forest? Hello? Oh, okay. This is Pickup Forest five years later. This photograph was taken in 1985. Now, in 1980, uh, evolutionists working for the U.S. Forest Service had said, 
it would take 400 years for the forest to come back. The, it was such a catastrophic event. Are you with me? It would take 400 years before the forest would regenerate. And evolutionary wildlife management experts said it would take 400 years for the elk to come back. Now, this was not an irrational idea. They simply said elk are large animals. They would need the shade of a mature forest to exist in the very hot, intense summers in the Pacific Northwest. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, the summers are short, but they are very, very intense. And it is not unusual to have temperatures over 100 degrees for three straight weeks. So the summers are short, but they're very intense, right? Ladies and gentlemen, it is now true confession time. When I was an evolutionist, I worked for the Forest Service in the Pacific Northwest. I didn't make those predictions. But I worked there. Now, do you see these little green things right here? Those are called trees. You see, it just so happens. Come on, I told you, I, I love the just so happens, right? You see, it just so happens that some of the tree species in the Pacific Northwest uh, are called by a nickname. They're called fire species. Now, what is a fire species? Well, a fire species is a tree that has a cone with live seeds inside, but the cone doesn't open every year like northern white pines and southern yellow pines. The cone stays closed year after year. Live seeds inside doesn't open, and the cone has a special resin coating on the outside. And only when there's a fire goes through the forest hot enough to kill the parents is there a time-release mechanism that causes the cones to open up after the fire and reseed the forest. Isn't that an interesting just so happens? It also just so happens that the most common tree species in this part of the country is lodgepole pine, and lodgepole pine is a fire species. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as they say in our neighbors down to the south in Louisiana, I'll guarantee you. There was enough heat here to kill the parents. You can still see them laying around. Enough heat to cause those cones to open up after the fires and uh, reseed the forest. Five years later, the trees are already starting to come back. Is that correct? Think with me. Some of those trees are today 33 years old. There are places in the forest you can't even tell this happened. Hello? And I don't mean to be redundant, but these are volcanic soils. Now, when you look at volcanic soils, uh, well, volcanic soils, they look very sterile. Is that correct? They do. When, when we were getting our astronauts ready to go to, to the moon, you know, we sent them to volcanoes because it was the closest thing to, to you know, the moon we got on Earth. Um, and, but the thing is, volcanic soils are actually incredibly nutrient-rich. If you have enough water in volcanic soils, you can grow almost anything. Well, exactly. Think of me. How about the garden islands of Maui, Kauai, out in the Hawaiian island chain? If you've got enough water on top of volcanic mountain peaks sticking out of the water, you can grow jungles on top of volcanic mountain peaks, right? That's it. Okay, look, folks, these soils are so incredibly nutrient-rich, you could cut off a finger, stick it in the ground, and grow another farmer. <laughs> and those are called elk. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we did not know this until the eruption at Mount St. Helens scientifically, but apparently elk come back from seeds. <laughs> the elk came back 395 years early. 
So apparently evolutionary wildlife management experts don't know what they're talking about. Well, I have only one more photograph to show you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the next photograph I have to explain to you. You are about to see an old man sitting on the ground, and his name is only coincidental with the vice president and president of the United States. But this gentleman's name really was Harry Truman. And so this is a picture of a man whose name really was Harry Truman. It's just coincidence. Um, but here you see Harry Truman. This is just after his 80th birthday. And here he is. And you see the cabin right behind him? That is his permanent year-around residence at the base of Goat Rocks on the north face of Mount St. Helens. Harry is one of the 57 people who died needlessly that day because they refused to heed the warning they were given. Think with me. You know, when the volcano came back to life, and then the north face started to bulge outwards, becoming pregnant, right? Everybody knew the north face was the weak side. If something was going to happen, it was going to happen there, right? And the U.S. Forest Service went out for hundreds of square miles, put up barricades all the way around, saying, don't go in, stay out, this is dangerous. They told the people who lived in that part of the forest to evacuate, right? But you know what I mean when I say this. There are always those people who will say, I know better, right? That Sunday morning, 57 people said, I know better. And because of that, 57 people died. They died from what I refer to as terminal stupidity. Hello? Harry was one of them. Now, he is one of the ones that was told to evacuate. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Harry Truman was a very profane old man. Because of that, I cannot quote what he actually said. You please understand that, okay? Uh, but when he was told to evacuate, he simply, I'm only paraphrasing, but when he was told to evacuate, he said, no. Again, I'm only paraphrasing. But, but he went on to say something like this. When he was told to evacuate, he responded by saying, no. I have lived here my whole life, and this mountain will not hurt me. He didn't say that. I'm just paraphrasing, okay? Uh, but think with me, ladies and gentlemen. If he and his cabin even exist today, they are hundreds of feet below the surface. Why am I saying that? I simply want to point out to you there's a finality to all things. You see, it doesn't matter how long you say to yourself, I've lived here my whole life, this mountain will not hurt me. I think you'll agree now. You live here long enough. This volcano is going to hurt you. Is that right? And so I simply want to close, turn this back over to Pastor in a moment, but, but I want to close by, first of all, challenging every Christian in this room. Think with me. There's a finality to all things. We have only a limited amount of time. Does seeing what you have seen occur at Mount St. Helens give you any more impetus, any more reason to go out and share with your family, your friends, your colleagues, your schoolmates? Does it? Because think with me, we have only a limited time. We have a finite time to get the job done. Is that correct? And so I really hope that this volcano does get you to go out and do something in an urgent way. But, but if there's somebody here who's not a Christian, I'd like you to think about Harry Truman for just a moment. Because you don't want to end up like Harry Truman. Think with me. You know, maybe, maybe you've realized in your life God's been calling you at times and places that you need to know him, and you've said no every other time. But tonight in seeing what happened to this volcano, you suddenly realize, you know, God is again using this to call me, and you don't want to end up like Harry Truman. And so, uh, well, Pastor, maybe you'd like to, to talk about that for a second, okay?
Wow, so we're almost done. Just take a minute just and close your eyes, if you would, just a moment, because the question that he's asking is, do you have a relationship with a loving God? So tonight, if you're here and you would just say, hey, look, I'm the one that said no. I've said no many times. Maybe tonight the Spirit of God is just moving to say, I'm calling you to say yes. And that's what you do. In your heart, not just in your mind, but in your heart. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. So tonight, just believe in your heart. And what is it that you confess with your mouth? That Jesus is Lord. He says, thou shalt be saved. So if you're here tonight and you made a decision to say yes tonight, when we're done, just come on up because I got a gift for you. I've got something that I want to put into your hands. I want to love you, first of all, and hug you and tell you that's a great thing. Congratulations. But there's also something else that I'd like to give to you tonight. So thank you for making a decision. Thank you that maybe you've been far away that you can say, yes, I'm going to get back in tonight in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Let's give Grady another hand. What an amazing time. Before you guys leave, I'm just, uh, there's two things. Number one is that there's an opportunity for you to get some more material back at Grady's um, table, okay? That's available for you. We're going to leave it up for a little bit longer. It will not be here tomorrow. We're going to pack it up. He's headed to another place. How many of you know Grady goes to five different continents? Five different continents. And you know what? You can go with him. Did you know that? Do you know how you can go with him? We can send him. You know, I was thinking about the tree that had the seeds, and there was a fire and because of, the, because of what took place with the, with the parent tree, it put a seed. I can sow a seed, a financial seed tonight, into this ministry, and he can go to Romania, he can go to Indonesia, he can go to different places, Japan, and he can actually preach the good news of Christ, and that would put a seed. And how many of you know it comes from that seed, it comes from the parent tree, which would be us, Amen. So I want you guys to know this. We are going to sow into Grady's ministry, whether you come out of your pocket and you put anything in that, in, in that basket tonight. So I'm going to ask you guys, you two guys, if you will, we're just going to pass this. No pressure for you if you've got something that you can sow into. And listen, some of you might just say, look, I just got, I'm, a, I'm a high school kid, man. All I got is change in my pocket. That'll make a difference, all right? So the question is, is will you sow a seed tonight? So, Father, we just bless you and those that are going to sow tonight that you just give them what you would have them to give. We're not under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. And we release this seed for Grady and his ministry to be able to preach the good news and to teach Christian education around the world in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Hey, turn to somebody next to you and say, we're glad you're here. Tell somebody else, thanks, we're glad you're here. We, we dismiss you guys tonight. Go forth in his power and his might. And if you're visiting Living Word, we'd love for you to come back and be our guest Sunday morning, 10 a.m. God bless you. Have a good evening.